We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you independent, interesting and hopefully accessible and engaging STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content from Hobart, Tasmania. The show is proudly supported and recorded at Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about the community radio initiatives that they're doing. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, and today we'll be talking about hydropower and pumped hydro with our guest, Christopher Gwynn from Hydro Tasmania. So, Sarah, are you going to kick us off today? Yeah, so welcome along today, Chris. It's great to have you here. Good to be here, Sarah. Um, we'd just like to start out by talking a little bit about hydropower. Could you explain to us how that works? Yeah, certainly. It's a, it's a technology that's been around for a very long time. I mean, we've been utilising hydropower in Tasmania for over 100 years now. It's, it's pretty simple. When, when water falls from a higher elevation to a lower elevation, it loses energy. A hydropower station effectively channels that water through a mechanical turbine, which then spins a shaft, uh, which is connected to basically a big electric generator. And we convert that that energy in the water uh, to electricity, and we connect it up to the power grid. So it's a it's a well proven technology that's used all over the world, and and has been around for a long time. And it's considered a renewable energy source as well. Yeah, it is. It's oldest established renewable energy source. It's, um, obviously, uh, the water needs to be replenished somehow at the in the I guess the upper reservoirs, and that um, comes through rain or snow, depending on which sort of hydro system. Uh, your years here in Tasmania, it's, it's mainly rain. Um, we obviously get a bit of snow melt um, during the winter time, but most of the water that we get in our reservoirs here in Tasmania is from rain. Um, compare that to Snowy Hydro in the Snowy Mountains of New South Wales, and most of their water comes from snow melt during the springtime. That's really interesting. So you say it's one of the longest used sources of energy. How long have people been using hydropower? The first hydropower station was built here in Tasmania back in 1913, probably going back into the sort of late 1800s where um, it was probably first being utilised. Um, and most of the time what would happen is you'd have a hydropower station directly connected to a large industrial load centre and that's really where um, the birth of our modern electrical system came from. Uh, companies were looking for sources of, of energy to power industry. So um, you'll find a lot of, of the early hydro systems, not just here in Tasmania, but like the world would have started from, from that place. Great, that's really fascinating. It's been around for so long. So, Sarah, you were saying that um, it's a renewable source of energy, which obviously people are talking about more and more that we need to move towards sources of energy that are sustainable and renewable. Um, what kind of questions does that pose for us? I guess, um, Chris, could you talk to us a little bit about how hydropower is different to other renewable energy sources like wind and solar? Yeah, they're, they're, they're all renewable energy sources in the sense of you know, they're replenished. Um, by nature in some way, shape or form. So they all operate quite differently. So um, a solar resource is quite regular. So sun comes up, you sort of know when it's going to come up and when it's going to go down. And, you know, you've obviously got some variability on cloud cover and, and weather patterns and things like that. But it, it's probably um, uh, quite predictable in terms of when it's going to turn up. 
Uh, wind resources are interesting as well. They, they are predictable, but not, not so much, not, not as predictable as a solar resource. Um, so yeah, weather forecasting can tell you when wind events are going to happen. Uh, but they tend to be longer events. So um, you know, wind events will occur over day. And then you can also then have what they call wind droughts, where you just you know, don't have any wind in those long still days um, that you can get. Yeah, that they'll form wind droughts. So water, uh, hydropower, obviously comes from rainfall patterns, and that's a completely different cycle again. So, you know, it's very seasonal normally. So, you know, the, anyone who operates a hydropower system will be looking very closely at um, what the, the, long, the longer term, the medium to long term weather forecasts are like, uh, and trying to get a bit of an idea as to whether or not you're, you know, you're going to get, you know, either rain or snow in your catchment as you'd normally predict, or are you going to have a wetter year or a dry year? And, and I guess adjusting. Um, adjusting your sort of energy management uh, within the system that goes with that. So in the future, you know, we're probably going to have a power system that is going to um, rely mostly on renewable energy. So there'll be a lot of, of wind and solar development uh, across the globe. Uh, and, it'll, you know, they'll become the, I guess, the more dominant forms of energy coming into our power system. Hydropower is probably a little bit different. I guess one of the key differences between hydropower and wind and solar energy is that uh, you can store the water and that's one of the big tricks in terms of trying to keep a power supply stable. If it's mainly wind and solar is that how do you sort of uh, store the energy in the system? I think that's some really good points there about the differences between those different energy sources but you know, it sounds like planning and seasonal variation are really important with the various different types of renewable or nature-available energy sources that we have. Um, how difficult is that to plan for in a rapidly changing environment and climate? It's really tricky. So, you know, we're, as, you know, as a, certainly in Australia, but more globally, we're moving to power systems that are going to be far more reliant on these natural resources. So the ability to, to predict uh, what, what's going to happen with the resources becomes a lot more important. Uh, but also the ability to be able to get diversity uh, in your in your system as well. So what I mean by that is, for example, uh, when the wind blows in Tasmania, it's, it's at a different time to the wind that blows, for example, in far north Queensland. So you know both both places have really really high quality wind resources, but they actually blow at different times. So you know how do you actually get the more diversity you can get in the resources that you have in your electricity system, the more they can sort of even even each other out, uh, and it and it's, um, the less storage you'll need in your system. So, um, trying to get uh, trying to get accurate predictions of what these resources are going to do in the short, medium, and long term, but also how do you how do you also get diversity in the resources, even within you know even within the wind resource or solar resource. So is that kind of using multiple sources of energy to essentially complement your um, availability from the production level to meet the supply demand that we've talked about previously on the show? So, you know, everybody getting home at 6pm and popping the kettle on obviously is a little bit difficult to plan for. So do we use complementary multiple different renewable sources to try and meet that supply demand? Yeah, exactly right. So the trick in, in some senses is that in theory... The moment you generate the electrons, you're consuming them sort of almost at the same time. So uh, the challenge when you have a when you have a system that's going to be really heavily dominated by wind and solar in the future uh, is that 
you know, all that energy will be coming into the system, not necessarily at the time that, that customers want to use it. So somehow you've got to store that energy uh, when it's not needed and then bring it back online when it is. And storage technologies are, the, uh, are going to be really key for us in the future, and that'll be chemical batteries. Um, they'll play a really, really big role. Uh, but also hydropower resources, so you know, a, what you'd call a conventional hydropower system, you know, like we have here in Tasmania, um, but also pumped hydro as well. And that's why the conversation around pumped hydro is, has gained a lot of interest in the last couple of years. We're going to have to find ways to, to store large amounts of energy uh, when there's an excess in the system, but then be able to bring it back online. Yeah, that's a really important point and something that we're going to get into a little bit more in the next segment of the show. Just while we're still talking about hydropower and conventional hydropower, are there any environmental impacts that you'd like our listeners to know about? Yeah, I mean, conventional hydropower, normally you're, you're sort of taking advantage of, a, of natural water. This, for example, here in Tasmania, you know, as over many decades when we've built the hydropower system here, you've, you've had to, to build uh, lots of dams on river systems. And when you interrupt a natural river flow, there's obviously a lot of environment that occur when you do that. So it's quite a complex technology to implement. It's got a lot of social and environmental issues. When I talk about social considerations, you know, you quite often you, if you're interrupting a natural waterway that's been used by communities in certain ways for a very long period of time, well, then you've got a lot of disruptions to how those communities, I guess, choose to interact with those with those resources. That's a very challenging and difficult issue um, to develop, I guess, conventional hydropower in the, in the 21st century. When I talk about environmental issues, you know, once you stand on, on river end systems, you interrupt not just the water flows, but you interrupt a lot of the wildlife, how the wildlife, both the marine wildlife and the non-marine wildlife, how that interacts with the water as well. So it's quite complex. To, to build new hydropower schemes and um, it's fair to say in Australia you know you've got two major hydropower developments that's the Snowy and Hydro Tasmania and you know, you've got a few smaller ones around the place but I don't think you'll see a lot of conventional hydropower development in Australia in the future uh, but you will see most likely quite a lot of pumped hydro development because pumped hydro as a technology um, has a much much smaller environment footprint than, than traditional hydropower does. Excellent. Well, I think that's a perfect segue to part with our first segment. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Dr. Sarah Lydon and Christopher Gwynn from Hydro Tasmania. And we're talking about hydropower. And in just a moment, if you tune in, we're going to be talking more about pumped hydro. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are talking about hydropower. My name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined with my co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, along with our expert guest, Christopher Gwynn from Hydro Tasmania. We've been talking about um, historical context and environmental impacts of hydropower generation as it's been traditionally in place for you know over 100 years, but something that's emerging as probably a more... Um, would you say sustainable or pragmatic approach to power generation is pumped hydro? So Sarah, are you going to kick us off? Yeah. So um, Chris, in the last segment, you mentioned pumped hydro and about how you see that's going to be very big in Australia over the next 10 years. Could you explain for our listeners the difference between a pumped hydro and a traditional um, or conventional hydro resource? Yeah, sure. Look, a conventional hydropower resource, the water basically flows in one direction, so it'll flow from an upper reservoir and flow down through some sort of water conveyancing system and it'll run through a power station and then it'll keep flowing downhill somehow. So essentially the water gets into the upper reservoir either by rain or snow and it only flows once through the turbine and it goes down to wherever it would go down further downstream. Pumped hydro is a little bit different. Essentially a pumped hydro installation will have upper reservoir and a lower one. When the upper reservoir is 
pool and you want to generate electricity into the grid, you will run the water through some pipes or some tunnels through the pump hydro station, um, which will then turn the energy in the water into electricity. But it'll capture the water in the bottom reservoir. It doesn't let it flow further downstream. So that's like a traditional hydropower generator. But essentially what pumped hydro is storage device. If you've got a situation where you've got too much electricity, too much energy in your system, so you've got more generation in, this, um, in the system than you have customers, this could happen quite a lot in the future when you have a lot of solar and resources in the system. So if the sun's shining, it's a really windy day, but people aren't using that much electricity, well, you'll have too much electricity coming in. So what you actually do then is you turn on the pumps that are part of the pumped hydro installation. So you effectively take the water that you've stored in the lower reservoir and you actually consume electricity off the grid and you pump that water back up to the upper reservoir. And you store it up there. So it's like a, a big battery. Essentially what you're doing from an engineering perspective is you're time shifting the energy. So you're taking energy out of the system at one point in time, storing it, and then bringing it back into the system at another point in time when customers need it. Think about it as a big water battery. So by saying it's a battery, though, essentially what you mean is that on a day when we have excess energy production because it's warm and it's windy, we can use that excess energy that we otherwise would just lose to wastage. We can use that to actually pump the water back up to a reservoir location and then when we need more energy we will flow that water down and harvest pumped hydro energy from it. If you think about it from an energy transfer perspective you're basically just removing energy out of it that's not needed and you're storing it in a form. So if you've got a chemical battery you're storing it in chemical electrodes um, but in a, in a pumped hydro installation you're actually storing it in water uh, that's held at a higher elevation. That's really interesting. It almost sounds too good to be true. It, you've got to have the excess energy in the first place. That's the key. So uh, there's not a lot of pumped hydro in Australia at the moment because uh, when you've got a power system that's been predominantly coal-fired and gas-fired, which is what Australia's power system traditionally has been based on, they're basically generation technologies that are controllable. So, you know, you have a fuel source that sits behind the power station and that's either, a, either coal or gas, and then you can use the generators to you know, either you either increase the amount of energy you're putting into the system by increasing the operation of the generators or you turn them down. So you've had that element of controllability uh, that, that means that you uh, you haven't needed to sort of be able to take energy out of the system and put it back in. As a technology, it's, it's very well established. It's just not a technology that's been used in Australia because of the nature of our power system. But if we move to a system that's mainly wind and solar, and that's what most people are expecting will occur over the next couple of decades, um, you'll probably see some significant pump hydro projects go ahead. Um, everyone, most people know about Snowy 2 these days. That's a very large pump hydro project um, that's, that's been built within the existing Snowy scheme. Uh, and obviously the Battery of the Nation, which is the Tasmanian version, I guess, in some sense of Snowy 2, where we've got the opportunity to actually add to our current hydro power system by building hydro. So why would we choose to use pumped hydro rather than, say, getting a bunch of large batteries? Most of the modelling that's been done in the market sort of points to the fact that we're going to need batteries and pumped hydro. And we may need other storage technologies that will come along over the coming decades as well. So batteries will, will be really, really important in the, in the future because they'll be able to provide that system support within the two to, two to four, maybe six hour range if, if the costs come down enough. But the modelling tends to suggest that we actually need storage durations that are much longer. Uh, if you want storage technologies to hold energy for, say, 10, 12, 
16 to 24 hours. That's where pumped hydro comes in because pumped hydro installations, when you design them, you find sites that, that will allow you to, to have those larger storage durations and they're going to be needed the further we get into this transformation. So the, the higher the penetration of wind and solar, uh, the longer the storage duration we're going to need to ensure we can maintain a secure and reliable so I guess the, the short answer, that was the long answer. There are the short answer is that it will need both. Uh, is using large-scale batteries, is that typically going to be using large chemical-based batteries and what kind of environmental impacts does that have? And are we just kind of really moving a problem further down the line of that we already are faced with with fossil fuels? It's a really interesting one. It's, you know, uh, large-scale uh, rolling of batteries will have its, will have its own challenges. You've obviously got to source all the raw materials and, and also batteries don't last as long as a pump hydro installation, but obviously you've got to sort of replace them um, at a faster rate. So, but you know, every every single technology has it has, I guess, its advantages and disadvantages as we transform. So, you know, even solar and, and wind have their challenges um, uh, as as they start to become dominant forms of generation in our system. So, uh, the challenge for us in terms of managing the power system is is how do we get the right balance? Um, between the various technologies such that we end up with a system that's reliable and affordable. But then how do we also manage the impact of these new technologies as they come in? Because there's no, there's no perfect solution um, in any sort of power system design. You, there'll be compromises along the way. And, and certainly the chemical batteries, that one of the big challenges will be that, you know, how do we make sure that we actually set up a whole of life cycle system for the batteries uh, to ensure that, that we can maintain them as a viable technology in our system uh, over the long term and we'll need to work that out you know as as systems all over the world start to transform uh, the the need or the demand for batteries will increase dramatically and, and we haven't even got to talking about electric vehicles and, and their battery requirements as well either so you know these are some of the challenges that we face as we make this transition so it's quite complex but um, it's quite exciting if you're in the industry because uh, you know when you have these sorts of challenges you know as an engineer or an analyst or a scientist um, it, it, it leaves a lot of room for creativity and innovation in terms of how do we how do we solve some of these problems? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. You know, there's always going to be compromise in any solution that we're creating for a new technology, and it also breeds a lot of creativity within that. So, can you briefly tell us a little bit about the Battery of the Nation project and maybe how that fits in with pumped hydro and, and battery storage? The Battery of the Nation concept uh, goes hand in hand with with the concept of more interconnection between Tasmania and. Victoria. So uh, at the moment we have uh, one electric cable, electrical cable between Tasmania and Victoria and uh, there's a concept that's under assessment at the moment, a project called Mariners Link and it's looking at putting more cables between Victoria and Tasmania and essentially it basically it creates a much closer connection between the two power systems. Now the reason why you want to do that is there's a couple of reasons. So the first one is that as the, as the power system transforms, particularly in, on the, in the mainland state. So let's just we take Victoria as an example. Victoria is a state that it's traditionally used a lot of brown coal-fired generation for its main energy source, and it's used gas-fired generation manage, I guess, the up, the, the, the unders and overs when you're in terms of matching supply and demand. So those power stations will start to, they're getting quite old, and they'll start to retire over the next 10 or 15 years. Those power stations, uh, in terms of new energy into the system, will most likely be replaced by a lot of wind and solar generation. This is a challenge that faces not just Victoria, but all the major states in Australia, because they're all based around coal-fired generation. So Tasmania is different. So Tasmania has a hydropower system and, we, and we've got some wind farms here as well. But we've traditionally been an energy system based on hydropower. 
But the trick is that we've always used our hydro power system here in Tasmania to check the lights. Um, but we could use that hydro power system for a slightly different purpose, and that's where the interconnector comes in. Essentially, it brings the two power systems closer together in Victoria and Tasmania. You then have this opportunity to actually uh, use the hydro power system in Tasmania a little bit differently to the way we do now. Pumped hydro story comes in because eventually you get to a point where we sort of, you know, max out that capacity of the existing scheme. We, we can't, we, we need more hydro machines in a sense to be able to keep on this journey. So we've got the opportunity here in Tasmania to build pumped hydro stations in our system. So we already have the water and we already have these big reservoirs. There's an opportunity for us to invest in, in pumped hydro assets here in Tasmania that will allow us to have more power stations down here to be able to store that excess water. We could do more of that, what they call firming and balancing, um, those new wind and solar resources as they come in. Now, the advantage that Tasmania has is that we've got an existing hydropower system, so there's a lot of infrastructure already in place. We will be able to uh, most likely develop hydro assets in a very cost-competitive way. So what is required to transfer existing traditional hydropower stations in Tasmania to pumped hydro stations? We don't necessarily change the existing assets and and make them pumped hydro. Uh, We would actually add to them. So if we were to build, for example, a major pumped hydro asset over the next 10 years, uh, it would be a new station in our scheme. So we might use existing reservoirs in our scheme in terms of the water that we've got, uh, but we would essentially be building a new power station in addition to the other ones we have. Uh, And that gives us more opportunity to store the water and then also inject that power back into the system uh, when when it's needed the most. So it sounds like that the battery of the nation is essentially because Victoria and South Australia have good wind and solar energy that we would create a kind of cooperative power sharing situation where Tasmania, rather than being reliant on our hydro power supply, we would share with their solar and wind energy via a a line that would go between Tasmania and the mainland. And then when there is low supply of wind and solar, we would issue hydro energy back to Tasmanians and also to the mainland. Is there any shortage of hydropower to supply Tasmania? You know, if we actually can fit the needs of our island state, and we have been doing so quite well for quite a long time, do we need to diversify to support the other states? Or do we return rather facetiously to island culture and say, no, (laughs) we're looking after ourselves, you know? We're a system that, that relies now predominantly on the on hydropower. So we're relying on one single resource, um, which sort of leaves us quite exposed in terms of long-term risk. So if, if we have situations where we have a number of, of years where we have low rainfall, it puts us in quite a difficult position in terms of managing the power system. The long-term weather forecast seems to be telling us, and I say long-term over many decades, seems to be telling us that we'll probably end up with a very similar amount of rainfall in Tasmania that we've always had. But it will be, become a lot more unpredictable. So if each state can share those natural resources, whether they be water or, or wind and solar, noting that the wind and the solar resource also vary state to state. The end outcome will be that we'll all have a more reliable health. So it's a little bit like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts because, you know, when one resource uh, isn't there for, for whatever reason, well, there's a whole bunch of other natural resources that we're sharing. If Tasmania were to say, well, we should just go on our own, we face the risk of you know increasing variability of our rainfall, which then is then reflected directly into us being able to keep the lights on. Pumped hydro, in a sense, uh, because it recycles the boat, it moves it from one reservoir to the other. It's it's a lot less exposed to those variations in rainfall patterns. So 
So you're essentially taking the hydro system in Tasmania and it's, and it's doing a slightly different job to what it's done in the past. And we think the reason why we're talking about this idea so much is we actually think that that change uh, in how we use the system will be much better off for Tasmanians uh, in terms of managing our long-term energy supply, but will also have massive advantages for uh, Victoria and South Australia and South Wales in particular uh, because it'll also help them make this transition as well. So that's why we're talking so much about it in the industry here in Tasmania, because we actually look at we look at all the various options we have in front of us um, in terms of managing Tasmania's long-term energy supply, and we look at this pathway as being um, the best one for, for Tasmanians, and it just so happens to be that it's also, um, we believe, got massive benefits for the other states as well. I think that's a really good point, and, you know, generally the we're all better than together than the sum of our parts. But is there a collegiate responsibility and buy-in from Australia as a whole for Battery of the Nation? Because it sounds like it's an excellent opportunity to essentially improve reliability for all states, not just for Tasmania. And most people, the lay person, is probably concerned about improving their bottom line in terms of household energy expenditure and reducing their, their cost. But it sounds like you know there's a lot of upfront infrastructure required here, and that probably needs to come from a collaborative federal directive. So is there much cross-state collaboration on this? We do need to work through lots of issues around, well, you know, what sort of investment needs to be made, who's going to pay for that investment, you know, how they're going to build. And these things are crossing state borders. So, um, you know, forums like COAG, um, the COAG Energy Council are really important because, that's the place where all the state energy ministers and the federal energy ministers get together on a regular basis and talk about, well, how do we manage these issues and how do we sort of create these win-win scenarios where where we can agree on a path forward that's going to be of benefit to all of us. And I, and I think the Battery of the Nation is a really good example of that. You know, it's not cheap to build a cable between Tasmania and Victoria. It's quite expensive, and as it'll be expensive to build new interconnection between all the states, but all the modelling shows that if you, for example, the modelling shows that if you build a cable like that between Tasmania and Victoria, how much of that benefit actually shows up Victoria and South Australia and New South Wales and even Queensland. Uh, so how do we actually have a have a good conversation around how do we pay for these investments? And I think it, it'll be part of it'll be a key part of the challenge for us. It's not just a technology challenge; it's a it's an economic and a political challenge as well. And you know, it's probably why you see so much active debate in the media around it because it's a tough one. It's coming up with a technology solution is one thing, but then actually being able to implement it, you know, as a as a as a series of projects that run over many decades, for example, is, is another matter altogether. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, a good way to put it is that science can often drive the solution, but getting the solution into practice takes a lot more than just the science and technology. So you've been listening to that's what I call science. We've been talking about hydro energy production and my name is Neve Chapman. I've been joined by Dr. Sarah Lydon and our expert guest Christopher Gwynn from Hydro Tasmania. If you loved the show please get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter or wherever you get your podcast. Please do like, subscribe and if you give us a review it really helps new people find content so we'd really appreciate that. I'd also like to give a shout out to the people behind the scenes that really help this work in motion. So Meredith Castles is our post-production person and Olivia Holloway is taking on media. We'd also like to give a proud shout out to Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information. Thanks again to my guests and please get in touch with us if you'd like to.